Welcome to the Grace Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to become a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. Every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m., we gather together at the Malco Theater in Collierville, Tennessee, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith by worshiping God through music, scripture, and a message for our lives. So if you're looking for a church home where you can feel loved and accepted as part of God's family, then come and join us at Grace Hill Church. You can visit our website at gracehill901.com for more information about our services and what we have planned for the upcoming weeks. We look forward to connecting with you. Now here's this week's message. I'll be reading from John 4, 43 to 54. Um, After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. I, uh, the last time I spoke to you, you, I don't know if you remember or not, but I shared with you what we in Christian terms call our testimony, you know, our recounting of our conversion experience and how we came to know Christ as Savior. And I I, uh, I told you that uh, when I was 16 years old, uh, a junior in high school, uh, a friend, a guy that I'd just met uh, in study hall, sitting a- across the aisle from me, challenged me to put importance into knowing God and believing in God. And I, you know, I had told him at that point I was an agnostic, you know. And then um, not long after that, um, our church was having a, like a youth meeting on a Sunday night at six. And uh, actually, I didn't want to go. My dad made me go. And I'm so glad he did because when I was there and I heard this guy share his testimony, his coming to Christ, I was strangely compelled to believe. And he preached at the next service and um, when he said, you know, if you know that you need Jesus to forgive you, I want you to come down front here and meet with me. And I just, I went. And my life was transformed. And, and um, I became a, what I'd call an inconsistent follower of Jesus Christ. What's interesting to me, and, and maybe it's interesting to you, is that I had attended church all my life. I mean, my parents had faithfully taken us to church every Sunday. And I remember, uh, for some reason, one particular Sunday school class I was in, there was a young man who was uh, teaching that day, 
And apparently he'd been to seminary, I guess, because uh, he shared some really interesting things with us. And there's two things that I particularly remember. And one, the first thing he shared with us that really stuck in my mind was that the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament had no spaces between the words, you know, like, like we do. The space, word, space, of, space, God. And, and he said, uh, that's not the case in the Greek manuscripts. There's no spaces between the words. And so he, then he put up an English sentence on the board. He wrote it out on the board. And uh, hopefully we've got a slide of this. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's at what you see on the screen there. And he said, you know, that could read, God is now here, or it could read, God is nowhere. <laughs> and so that really, you know, that my imagination was fired by that. And it, even though I think about it, it was not a very encouraging message to teach in Sunday school. Um, you know, it seemed designed to kind of make you question whether we could really understand the New Testament and what his message was. Um, of course, much later I discovered there is no such problem understanding the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. We don't have this issue of confusion like that in the Greek New Testament. But wasn't that kind of a strange thing to teach to a a class of kids in Sunday school? Uh, The second thing he taught, uh, and that I remember vividly, is that um, Israel was expecting the Messiah to be like this military leader who was going to come overthrow the Roman government and establish the sovereignty of Israel once again. And because of this anticipated understanding of who Messiah would be, um, when Jesus didn't, you know, he didn't do that. He didn't act like that. He didn't act like a military leader. Uh, It made it hard for people to believe in him. You know, I learned other things about uh, Jesus in church. And I would say, you know, that as a child, as a young person, I... In a sense, I believed in Jesus. But it wasn't until I was 16 and that night at at church that I really believed in Jesus. Do you know the distinction? Uh, Is it fair to make that distinction? I think it is. Uh, I think it's similar to what we're going to see in this passage that we're looking at today, the encounter that Jesus had in Cana of Galilee with this royal official who had the ailing son in Capernaum. So, you know, once again, let's look at the passage. And in verse 43, it starts out, after the two days, Jesus left for Galilee. And this this calls us back to what's happened before in in chapter 4 of John. We're told at the very beginning of chapter 4 that Jesus had left Judea for Galilee. And the reason it says is because the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. You know, John was extremely popular in Israel. People were coming in droves to be baptized by him. And the Pharisees were not too excited about that. They were they were pretty negative. That made them nervous. And then to find out that Jesus is baptizing even more people than than John the Baptist, um, Jesus was, you know, not extremely popular, I guess you'd say, in Judea. And while he was there in Judea, he had done a couple of things. He had, 
He had cleansed the temple. You know, he overturned the tables of the money changers. He drove out the, the people that were selling livestock for sacrifices. Um, this, of course, did not make the Pharisees or, or the other religious leaders very happy at all. Uh, and then we're told this in John chapter 2. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in a man. So you would think, all right, Jesus is doing these signs, these miracles, people are believing, he'd be happy, but he's not because he understands that they're not necessarily believing in him. They're believing in his miracle-making ability. They're excited by that. Now, Jesus had met, you know, one Pharisee, and Jason preached on this, Nicodemus. He was, I guess you'd say, he's relatively friendly to Jesus. Uh, but the majority of the Pharisees, of course, were quite suspicious and anxious about Jesus. And so things had got a little, a little hot in Judea, or... And I guess it's because of this that Jesus felt like it was probably prudent for him to sort of get out of town for a little while. Let things cool down a little bit. So Jesus leaves for Galilee. Then, as you know, he goes through Samaria. Uh, Jason explained to us last week that um, most Jews usually went... uh, a route uh, from Judea to Galilee that sort of skirted Samaria. Let's see if I can get this pointer working. Nope. There it is. You can't see that very well, can you? But here's, here's Jerusalem where he was. And typically the Jews would travel this road here to kind of go around Samaria and then up to Galilee. But Jesus went straight up through Samaria and he went to Sychar where the well was and he meets the woman uh, who comes to the well by herself um, and Jesus converts her. She becomes a follower of Jesus. She believed in him. She goes and tells the entire town of Sychar about Jesus. They all get excited. They come, they, they believe in Jesus. And so Jesus stayed there two days extra beyond what he had planned his journey to teach the Samaritans to minister to them. And that's where our passage picks up. After those two days, John John 4, 43, after the two days, he left for Galilee. And then it says, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So Jesus and his disciples are traveling and he makes this statement to his disciples as they're on their way, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, why would he say that? Why make that comment? And I think, you know, he's just been in Judea. He has um, done many signs, cleansed the temple. He's done all this thing. He's created quite a stir, stir in Judea. And he's left there, you know, cool down, let things uh, cool down a little bit. But now the expectation is is that when he comes to his own country, which is Galilee, he was raised in Nazareth, 
he's not going to be a big celebrity there. It's not going to be the same kind of atmosphere as there is in Judea. And, and I think what that means is there'd be less distraction and he could minister more freely in the region of Galilee. So verse 45, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. So Jesus comes into Galilee kind of expecting that he's not going to be that well known, but he isn't as unfamous as he anticipated being. And this is because these Galileans had made pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. They had seen and heard about Jesus and all that he had done there. And they got excited. They were impressed with Jesus. So maybe contrary to Jesus' expectations, he has received and welcomed there maybe more than he anticipated he would be in his home country. Now, this is not to say, however, that Jesus was honored in Galilee. And this is kind of the focus of this, this encounter with Jesus that the, the man from Capernaum has. The Galileans, yes, they had a positive impression about Jesus. They were excited about his miracle working abilities. But that doesn't mean they recognized him as the Messiah. That doesn't mean they really believed in him. And we see evidence of this when Jesus reaches Cana. Look at verse 46. Once more, Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. So Jesus makes his first stop in Galilee back at Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. He stops there to visit, and, and probably because he had relatives there. I mean, that's why he had been invited to that wedding. Some relatives, um, you know, someone he was related to had gotten married, and his mother and he were there for the wedding. And then there's this royal official who has come to Cana, someone in the service of Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch or the regional leader of Galilee and Perea. Let's see if I can show that on the map. So here's Galilee, and here's Perea, and Herod was the tetrarch, the leader of that area. See, it says tetrarchy of Herod Antipas. He goes to Cana, and this is where this royal official comes to meet him and beg him to heal his son. Capernaum was, uh, maybe you can see it there on the top of the Sea of Galilee, it was you know, less than 20 miles from Cana. Uh, that was probably about a day's journey walking. Um, Cana was a little higher region, hillier region. So he went up to Cana, and that's the expression that's used here. Somehow he had heard that Jesus was in Galilee, and he had a need. He had a deep need. And when he begs Jesus to heal his son, Jesus' response seems kind of rude. 
He says this in verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And what a thing to say to a guy, right? Who's hurting, who's struggling. But we know, we know, don't we, that Jesus is never rude. Jesus is never inappropriate. Jesus isn't petty. He's not impatient. He has no sense of self-importance. His response always, always has a purpose. So let's think about this response. What is it, the purpose here? As you think about this, why do you think, what was the only reason that this royal official had come to see Jesus? It was all about getting his son healed, wasn't it? That was the only thing that brought him to Jesus because his son is apparently close to death and he's heard Jesus as a miracle worker. And so this is his last option as far as he's concerned. I've got to get this help for my son. Now, could he or should he have had other concerns than just getting his son healed? And we could say, yes, he could have been interested in Jesus because his miracles and the other things he had done had given evidence that he's the Messiah. He's the one who's coming to restore Israel to greatness. He's the one who is bringing the kingdom of God. Now, that could have been his concern. Should it have been his concern? I would say, yes, it should have been his concern. But we understand you know, what he's dealing with here in his life, this situation with his son, that kind of gives him a one-track mind, doesn't it? That's almost like all he can focus on. And he comes to Jesus about this and not about any of the other aspects of who Jesus is. And I would say this, Jesus is more concerned about this man than you and I are. And that's why he says what he says. Jesus knows that this man needs more than just faith in Jesus as a miracle worker. Look at verse 48 again. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And Jesus uses two words here for the miracles that he did. Signs and wonders. First word, signs. Signs are pointers. Signs are like direction signals that say, look to God. Look to what's happened here. What you've seen in this miracle here should point you to God and look to him and his love and his power that has accomplished this. That's what's important here. God is the much more important factor in a miracle. And Jesus' miracles are signs, they're pointers that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the one sent from God. He's the one who does the will of God. He's the one who is the promised Messiah. The other word Jesus uses here is wonders. And wonders are amazing displays of power that cause awe in the people that see them, but they don't necessarily lead the observers to something deeper. Something more than just, oh, how amazing, how fantastic this is. And so Jesus is telling this poor man that he's really only coming to Jesus because 
signs and wonders. He's really only seeking a wonder worker, a wonder producer to minister to a specific need that he has, the need for his son to be healed. So the man is not recognizing that Jesus is really the answer to way more of his needs than he realizes. The need of his son seems to trump everything else. Now, to be fair, Jesus isn't saying he's the only one who's guilty of this. He's saying this of all the people of of Galilee, basically. You people, you need signs and wonders in order to to believe. Um, And generally, what he's suggesting is that the people of Galilee are not thinking of him as anything more than a wonder worker. And they might look to him as someone who can meet some needs for survival that they have. And this is what we see in John chapter 6. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, then the, the crowds come to him. They're kind of like goading him into doing another miracle. You know, they want another meal. They want another free plate lunch. I mean, this is what they're coming for. And that's just looking to Jesus to be a wonder worker. Jesus is calling this man to more to something more than that, if the man can receive it. And we might say Jesus is calling us to something more if we can receive it. Jesus wants more for this man than this man knows he needs. It seems the man can't focus on anything else. He's only got bandwidth for so much, but Jesus doesn't reject him for that. Look what it says in verse 49. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. What would you do at this point? You've come about your child who's dying. You want him to come to your town, a day's journey away walking, and heal him, touch him, something, anoint him, whatever you need to do to heal him. And Jesus says, go. Your son will live. Would you have thought, well, that was a bust. <laughs> you know, that, that didn't work. My son's a goner. And just turned around and walked away. Would you, would you believe that Jesus could heal from a distance? I mean, this guy hadn't heard of, or maybe it even hadn't happened yet, where, uh, you know, the, the centurion whose servant was ill, Jesus just had to speak a word the centurion said, and his servant would be healed. He didn't have to come and see his servant. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't a common understanding. And so it no doubt seems unlikely to you probably that your son can be healed any other way than if Jesus comes physically to him and heals him. But look at what this man does. Look again at the passage. It says, uh, end of verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. So at the time that Jesus had said to the ruler, to the ruler's official, um, 
your son will live at 1 a.m. in the afternoon. That's when his son got better. And his servants, when his son got better, they knew where his, their master was. He was down in Cana to talk to Jesus, the miracle worker. They departed. They left to get him. And, you know, they could tell him now, oh, we don't need the miracle worker anymore. Your son's great. Uh, we don't need any healing ministration here any longer. We don't need a miracle worker here anymore. Uh, everything's good. But the father now knew. You know, he had taken Jesus at his word. He had exercised this bit of faith, if you say it, and he left for home. And indeed, Jesus' word was good, wasn't it? His son had been healed from afar. Look at verse 53. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. Something's happened here. He believed something before, but now it says he believed. He believed, but now he really believes, if we want to use that phraseology. The father of this sick son describes this whole thing to his servants, the rest of his household. And for them, this is a moment of faith. They, as a household, as a group, they all believe. Jesus was a miracle worker, to be sure, but he was more than just a wonder worker. He was performing signs, pointers, pointing to the truth of who he was, pointing to his identification as the Messiah, the one they'd looked for for so many, many years. I think in this passage, the, if we want to say the big idea of it, is that what is being challenged in the hearts of those for whom Jesus does miracles is not just faith in his miracle ability, but faith in him. And there's a difference. Jesus makes this point on a number of occasions in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 10, for example, he says this, but if I do them, that is, the works he sees his father doing, if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the father is in me, and I am in the father. There's a difference between believing in Jesus' works and believing in Jesus Believing in his works can be, can be like a step towards believing in him, but it's not yet believing in him. You know, I believed things about Jesus when I was going to Sunday school, Pueblo, Colorado, that's where I was raised. And you might could say I, I believe that Jesus was something very special, but I didn't really believe in him. He didn't make a difference in my life. He he wasn't my go-to for everything. There's a difference between believing about Jesus and believing in him. You know, I think it, we experience this in our regular relationships too. Uh, for example, you know, I for many, many years have been going to a, a general practitioner, a doctor uh, in Memphis uh, who, you know, he seemed competent. He, he was nice, <laughs> 
seemed like took good care of me. But when I really got sick with, I had a terrible bout of colitis. And I mean, I thought I was going to die, seriously. And probably if I had remained untreated, I could very well have died. But I, I got Marion to take me to visit him at the, his office, <laughs> which I probably should have just gone to the hospital. But I went to visit him at his office. He immediately recognized, this is serious. You got to go to the hospital. He set it all up. He found a way to, to heal me. I went from believing about him to believing in him. There's a difference. I mean, I could say the same thing about uh, my relationship with my wife. You know, when we're dating, I think she's fantastic. I'm enjoying being with her. But at some point in our relationship, I realized this is the one I want to spend my life with. I don't just believe about her. I believe her. And this is what Jesus is challenging us to, challenging this man to, explaining what believing in him means. In John chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus says, or it says the Jews who were gathered around Jesus, they were gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. If the people of Israel are looking for the Messiah, if they're looking for this one who's going to usher in the new age, this one who's going to bring the kingdom, if they're looking for this one who'll bring the loving and perfect rule of God to earth and transform all his people into loving law keepers, if that's what they're looking for, then look no further. Jesus is the one. Jesus is in the Father, and the Father's in him. Jesus is the good shepherd. Whom, to whom Yahweh has given all authority. Jesus is the utopia maker. He's the kingdom builder. He's the one who gives eternal life and no one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. So the question is, are you Jesus' sheep? Do you listen to his voice? Does his voice matter to you? Are you obsessed in a sense with Jesus' voice like sheep would be with their shepherd's voice? Do you follow him? In John chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus says, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. You don't have 
to have a miracle from Jesus in order to believe that the Father's in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father. Um, they're identified. They're, Jesus said, I and the Father are one, one thing. Father is the sender. Jesus is the goer. The Father is the sovereign. The Son is the, the perfect servant of the sovereign. But if you can't see this in Jesus himself, see it in the evidence, he's saying, of the works that he performed, the miracles, the signs that he did in his Father's name. Believe. In John 15, Jesus said, If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they've hated both me and my Father. So not everyone will believe in Jesus in this sense. Not everyone will even if they see the signs pointing directly at him, will embrace him as the Messiah. And they'll, they won't be guiltless for that, for having not believed. They're, they're guilty. They've seen the works Jesus has done, but instead of loving him, instead of trusting him, instead of being grateful to his father, they both hated Jesus and the father. Their hatred moves them to, to play down the miraculous. In some cases, like the Pharisees did, even attributing Jesus' miracles to the, to the devil. There's a difference between believing in Jesus as a miracle worker and believing in Jesus. Jesus longs for us to believe in him. He's not just a miracle worker. He longs for us to believe in him. As he said, unless you see the signs and wonders, you'll never believe. But is that true of you? Ask, ask for your needed miracles <laughs> or don't. But Jesus is more than his miracles. Believe in him. Believe in him. To believe in Jesus is not just to believe in his miracle working ability, but it's to trust that he's the loving and ruling representative of our Heavenly Father, the promised Messiah who ushers in the kingdom of God, and then to lovingly and loyally follow him. That's what it means to believe in him. Do you believe in Jesus in that sense? Has your faith gone from believing about him to believing him? Can you, can you examine yourself in this regard? Can you take a self-evaluation? Where am I on this? You know, whether he works a miracle for you or not, do you trust and believe in him? Do you loyally love him? Believing in him means he's the most important relationship in your life. John closes out this chapter in verse 54 he says, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. John has based his gospel on seven signs, seven pointers, miracles that Jesus does. And Jesus has done enough signs for you and me to believe in him. And the most amazing one he did was he rose from the dead. 
He is our living Savior who asks us to believe in him. Father, thank you for this uh, amazing passage, uh, the account of this uh, man's encounter with Jesus. And in encountering him, he was challenged, Lord Jesus, to believe in you in a way he hadn't. He trusted that you could do miracles, but he hadn't believed in you. And we thank you for this um, lesson to us, this teaching to us, so that we might know and understand what it means to believe in, to believe you. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.